Hey, everybody, join us as we delve into our favorite dark tales and paranormal mysteries. Venture with us beyond the safe places that exist in daylight as we go Beyond Beyond the the Shadows. True crime. Paranormal. Hauntings. UFOs. Cryptids and unsolved mysteries. Conspiracy theories. Past lives. Reincarnation. And all the like are just a few of the topics that we will tackle. If it haunts your fucking dreams, then it will be on our show. Welcome back to Beyond the Shadows. This is Ryan. And this is Scott. So me and Scott recorded that about 35 years ago with the anticipation. 35, 36. Yeah, yeah. something like that. The anticipation we were going to do a <laughs> podcast. And, and here it is. How handy, man. <laughs> what luck we've stumbled across that one. Now, our little boys have wanted to get involved with the show for a while, so we recorded that. We had them record that for us, so that was that was a good bit. They had that fun doing fun. that. Uh, welcome back to uh, episode 20. This is part three, the final part of our Amityville special. As I said in part two, you don't have to listen to them in order, but I would def- definitely recommend starting with uh, episode 18, which would be part one, and then finishing up with uh, this, which is part three. Yeah, we're going to do a couple more shout-outs here. We want to shout-out a couple more podcasts and uh, uh, people that we're going to be working with coming up. So, so we got the uh, suspended sentence is a is a great show. It's on uh, Spotify. Yeah, that's it, Tracy and Samantha. They're a mother and daughter team. Yeah, they're from uh, Wyoming and they cover a lot of uh, true crime, unsolved crime, uh, mental health, and uh, issues with the justice system. And boy, they put out some content. Yeah, they've been cranking. Yeah, I mean, what would you say? What episode is this? Twenty. Yeah, this is episode this 20. Episode 20. I yeah. think they're like 60, and they've been out around the same amount of time as us, so they don't play around. Yeah. They put out some stuff. It's definitely so a good, it's good show. good stuff, too. Check it out. So, yeah, check them out. We get another podcast, The Ghost Sisters, that we'll probably be doing some work with here coming up, too, and that is Whitney and Taylor. Um, they do a, a paranormal podcast, and uh, we'll probably be doing a collabora- collaboration with them, too. And I, one of them, I believe, is a scientist. I've never met Damn. a scientist in real life. I didn't know they were real. Yeah. I, I pretend yeah. I know shit. But <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so anyways, check them out too, and uh, hopefully we'll have something for you with them here in the future. Uh, so there's a story been in the news the last last week or two, I think, uh, about uh, the body parts and the bodies being stolen from the, the Harvard morgue. Yeah, this is fucked yeah, up. Some, some, some creepy-ass shit. So the uh, – if you haven't heard about it, the morgue manager is named Cedric Lodge. Unfortunately, he's one of our New Englanders. Yeah. Yep, just over in New Hampshire. Yeah, him and his wife in New Hampshire. They were both arrested. Uh, they were selling bodies and body parts. And, you know, who the hell would be buying that? Is It's oh. another matter entirely. Oh, you get to see the people yeah, who are buying that there stuff. There are some creepy fuckers out there. So there's a lady yeah. arrested named Katrina McLean. She bought from, a couple of what, faces? Yeah, faces. Yeah. Yeah, uh, it wasn't face off. It was nothing cool <laughs> like that. She literally bought. She creates. Uh, and unfortunately, she's another New Englander. Yeah, she's from around here too. Uh, she's we got a just, shop called Cat's Creepy Creations, which you know. Yep, she makes stuff with you know yeah. body parts. Uh, she paid so, six hundred dollars for those faces. 
Six. That's three hundred. That that's a good deal. I yeah, think three hundred a face. I haven't checked out the face price. I don't know lately, what the going prices are, but it's got to <laughs> be. That sounds reasonable. It sounds like a good deal. And then they also arrested uh, Jeremy Pauly, who was actually buying human skin yep. and tanning it for leather. Uh, he's from Pennsylvania. And if you check out a picture, yeah, I don't want to stereotype, but uh, if <laughs> if you picture a fucker that was arrested for this type of thing, and you get a visual, you look him up. It's exactly what he looks. Like. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. If you, if you ever picture like. somebody who would, I don't know, have a pit in their basement. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's this guy, right? Here. You know, even Buffalo Bill from uh, Silence of the Lambs would be like, oh, this fucker's <laughs> This guy's creeping me up. <laughs> Definitely. So, uh, thanks for joining us, guys. And we're going to get right to uh, Amityville. So today we're doing The Conspiracy. We've done the uh, murders. We've done the haunting. And now we're going to get to our opinions. This is the part the Ryan's been chomping at the bit to Absolutely. get to. So. Uh, we'll be right back. Almost from the get-go, the events that the Lutzes claim happened to them during their 28 days in Amityville have been called into question. Many of the facts don't add up. As the story took off and gained national exposure, the voices of those who had questioned or doubted the haunting seemed to have been drowned out or flat-out ignored. Almost 50 years after the murders and subsequent hauntings, Beyond the Shadows is going to dive in and take a deeper look. The Lutzes moved into their new home... On December 23rd, 1976, or December 18th, 1976, they give both dates in different versions, which is awkward and confusing, since they spent less than a month total at the address. They moved in the day they closed on their loan, so it shouldn't be difficult to determine. Anyway, let's start at the beginning. The night the DeFeos were killed in their beds, the neighborhood became a media circus. No one knew who had done it yet why, when, or much else for that matter, just that six family members were dead. Joe Martin of WBAB Radio was on the scene that night and went and spoke with the neighbors about what she may have heard or seen. She did not have hear any gunshots, no one did, but she did hear the DeFeo's dog barking, or bang as she put it, and it woke her up. She fixed the time at about 3 a.m. to 3.15 a.m. The coroner never states that this was the time of the murders, nor did anybody else. The coroner fixes the time of death as sometime in the morning of November 13th. The neighbor made the statement about the dog barking around that time, and that becomes the accepted time. What time does George Lust claim to wake up every night? 3.15 a.m. On February 16th, 1976, George Lutz calls Dr. Stephen Kaplan. Stephen. Dr. Stephen Kaplan, <laughs> who runs the Parapsychology Center of America, and asked if he and his team can come and investigate their, their home. Kaplan agrees to bring his team in to investigate, but warns Lutz that if it is a hoax, they will expose it. Lutz agrees, and the investigation is set. Three days later, Lutz calls Kaplan back and cancels the investigation. The reason? He doesn't want any more publicity. He and his family need quiet now. Five days later, the cameras were rolling as the Warrens, multiple mediums, mediums, psychics, reporters, and others held seances and explored the house to an audience of millions amid a carnival-like atmosphere. A strange move for a family seeking to avoid publicity. 
If it wasn't publicity the Lutzes were avoiding, then perhaps it was Kaplan's promise to expose any fraud, if there be any. During their initial phone conversation, George tells Kaplan that he had no knowledge of anything paranormal-related prior to them having moved in, but he had taken a crash course during their stay. While they lived there, he claimed to have read books on demonology, Satanism, ghosts, witchcraft, psychic phenomena, and such, all in 28 days and while in constant terror. He also tells Kaplan that he knows Ray Buckland, who was a known witch in the area, and ran the Witchcraft Museum in Bayfield before leaving for England a few years before. He, quote, spoke with Buckland many times while he ran the museum. But Buckland had left years before, and he had no knowledge of anything paranormal before he arrived in Amityville. You're confusing us, George. Yeah, George was busy in this time, wasn't he? He did a lot of reading. (laughs) A short Newsday article came out only days later, stating that the Lutz moved into their dream home on December 23rd and were forced to move out after only 10 days. These details of the story vary greatly from later versions, so perhaps this true story was being fine-tuned. In the article, one of George's friends says the reason that they moved out is because they had used all the money purchasing the property and had no money left to repair the broken heating system. The article also says that the Lutz had been so scared that they had Sergeant Pat Camarado of the Amityville PD out to discuss their plight at the house. When asked about their frequent interactions with the Lutzes during their brief stay in Amityville, the police tell a different story. They were not out to 112 Ocean Avenue a single time while the Lutzes lived there. They did not come out to investigate the door hanging off the hinges or to feel vibrations or to look at the prints in the snow, or anything otherwise. Their only contact was when George came into the station one day and asked the police to hold on to a handgun for him. The reason? He was feeling like he might want to kill his family and wanted to place the gun in a safe place. I mean, I get that part. But <laughs> <laughs> The next day, he came back for the gun, and since it was legally registered and permitted, they had no choice but to give it back. This was only a few days after the Lutzes moved in. However, in a newspaper article issued not long after they moved out, Kathy stated that they weren't scared until after they took down the Christmas decorations on January 6th. After that, things had gone crazy. So why turn in the gun because of the way the house made you feel if you're now saying that the house wasn't yet making you feel anything? You know, this is a you go this is kind of a thing where you you think if you're going to Claim that the police came out to your house. You may have wanted to at yeah. least call them to come out to the house, and, and they do. Yeah, I know that's not thought out very well. And they referenced uh, back in the in the the haunting story. I think that he claims on three separate occasions the police were there. Yeah, you don't think they're going to have records? The of police that? were not there a single time. There's no record of them coming out and, at uh, all. No, no calls or no nothing. But you and, know, you that's a fact. You think that you would. Uh, Maybe not put in there because people are going to be able to catch. That's provable. And the uh, the Sergeant Camarado was a, a real guy. I don't remember if they changed his name for the story or not. But when they spoke to him, he was furious that they continued to bring up his name. And uh, I believe he had a lawyer contact them, and they still didn't stop bringing up his name. So him and the Amityville police were very pissed off the Lutzes about just making shit up, which oh, I, don't, I, I don't blame them. I bet they were. Gerald Sullivan was one of the two investigators from the Psychic Research Foundation at the house the night of the Channel 5 seance. He later said that of the investigation that night, it was a circus there. There were so many people roaming around the house that there was no way we could conduct a scientific investigation. 
When the Lutz originally called us into the investigation, they didn't tell us they would be bringing in a camera crew that same night. It certainly seemed like the goal that night was to generate publicity, which the Lutz claimed they wished to avoid. While feying on investigating an atmosphere that made an actual investigation impossible. When the seance was unsuccessful, Lorraine Warren stated about the failure to identify any demons, it's not going to declare itself to all these people. Then why would the experts on such matter deliberately create an atmosphere that's unsuitable to summon the entities if that was their ultimate goal? Kaplan calls the American Society for Physical Research, who were there the night of the investigation at 112 Ocean Avenue. At first, they won't speak to him about the case, but much later on, Alex Tenois agrees to speak off the record. He tells Kaplan that he first spoke to George Lutz in February of 1976, not more than a month after they fled the house. As part of their investigation into the paranormal events, they requested a sample of his handwriting, a normal part of their research intended to reveal parts of a person's character. George happily obliged and handed over a piece of paper with a signature on it that just so happened to be at the bottom of a contract for a book. So less than a month after supposedly fleeing for their lives in terror, George had already located a publisher author and laid out the foundation of a book a little sketchy George. yeah really you know i didn't know they did this where they took looked at your handwriting to yeah i don't I, yeah i was surprised by that but i guess it was it wasn't they did that on all their cases for whatever reason you know it's funny because just... i'm sitting here looking at a, p- a piece of paper from ryan's handwriting yeah, yeah. <laughs> straight serial killer shit there <laughs> i don't even know how to read it but i can tell by looking at that i, I will freely yeah, admit you, i can't read my yeah. fucking writing most <laughs> got, of the time you definitely got a couple bodies in your basement. i'll make notes and i'll look down and I'm like what the fuck does that say <laughs> so i have to type all my shit because i can't read it <laughs> Father Mancuso was ultimately tracked down and revealed to be Father Frank Pecoraro. Pecoraro? Pecoraro, yeah. It was determined that he met the Lutzes in late July of 1975. After they got married and thus, he definitely did not provide them spiritual guidance prior to their marriage as they indicated. He denied any physical harm coming to him as a result of the house in Amityville. No sickness, no stigmata. No foul smells in his residence. He had spoken to the Lutz over the phone about their psychic experiences and nothing more. He had blessed the house from the rectory and had never actually set foot inside of the house. And the car troubles he was reported to have experienced after leaving the house? His hood was reported to have popped open and smashed over his windshield, obscuring his view. But the car he was reportedly driving was a Chevy Vega which had a hood with the hinges in the front and opened away from the windshield. This model of car he was driving was changed in later versions of the true story to accommodate the discrepancy. You know, what are the odds that they say that and he's got like the one car in existence that the hinges are on the I didn't even know prior to the story that there ever had been a model of such car like uh, that. Well, I've seen them on seen them on you know shows or whatever where they open in the yeah. opposite direction. But what are the odds? <laughs> you know, <laughs> they just happen to pick a fake car with that hood. You know, <laughs> with the absolute one hood that couldn't happen to. In a 2002 letter to the assistant of the vicar general, uh, wrote the diocese maintains that the story was a false report. 
In November of 1977, the diocesan attorneys prepared a substantial list to be presented to the author of the Amityville Horror of numerous inaccuracies, factually incorrect references, and untrue statements regarding events, persons, and occurrences that never happened. Attorney William Weber, who had represented Ronald DeFeo at his murder trial, also knew the Lutzes. He claims to know for a fact that the hauntings were a hoax because he had because he was with them when most of the story was cooked up. Uh, Weber had been planning a book about possible demonic activity in Amityville as a means of possibly getting his client a new trial when he was conducted by the Lutzes. They got together for dinner and had a lengthy discussion about ideas for a book. According to Weber, they went through about four bottles of wine that night and laid down a good part of the groundwork for their book idea. He freely admitted that the story was pure fiction. He showed the Lutz crime scene photos from the DeFeo killings, and in those pictures, much of the walls, doors, knobs, etc. are covered by fingerprint dust, making it look like there was a dark slime staining things. And this is where the slime from the haunting reports come from, dripping down the walls, from keyholes, pooling on the carpet, etc. The black sludge Kathy reported in the bathroom was also cooked up by using crime scene photos. They appeared to be stained with black sludge in the photos due to the investigation having the investigators having washed their black fingerprints dust off their hands. The flies in the sewing room and the odor about the house entered the story after Weber reported that daughter Dawn's body had been left for 18 hours in a very hot room and thus had drawn flies before investigators arrived. Weber also told the Lutzes that the DeFeo's neighbors, the Irelands, had a large cat named Evanrude that liked the, the peak in the DeFeo's windows. Evanrude also liked the boathouse and snuck inside to look for fish. Butch hated the cat and its red eyes and constantly referred to it as a fucking pig. Clearly a very large part of the haunting was cooked up during these conversations. The Lutzes ended up deciding not to write the book with Weber, however, and he later sued them, and they settled out of court. Weber also stated that the secret red room the Lutzes claimed to have stumbled upon was no secret at all, and wasn't really hidden. To call it a room was also a stretch, as it was tiny and amounted to a small storage space under the stairs. It was also never painted red. The fact that George initially reported to have thought it may have been a bomb shelter is hilarious if you've ever actually seen the room. It's a perfect size to survive the Armageddon if your family consists of Barbie dolls. <laughs> Anson claimed that he and George Lutz had both spoken to the Amityville Historical Society, who told them that the site of the house was where the Shinnecock tribe had once kept their sick and dying. The Shinnecock also believed the area to be, quote, infested with demons. The historical record, in fact, has no record of the tribe ever having lived in or near Amityville, and the historical society emphatically denies ever having spoken to Lutz or Anson. One historical society member stated, I've lived in this area all my life, and I've never heard these stories before. Yeah, once again, something they could have oh, yeah. made a phone yeah. call to try to make this story more solid. Real, no. Really poorly constructed lies, just... The Lutzes also made several glaring mistakes about their own house. They initially reported that the second floor sewing room has to have been a major hotspot for the hauntings as it was Ronnie's former bedroom. When told his bedroom had actually been on the third floor, the sewing room remained haunted, but the paranormal also moved upstairs as well. 
Their third floor door with George reportedly witnessed slime seeping from the keyhole didn't even have a keyhole. It had a solid metal plate. The numerous doors and hardware that the Lutz stated to have been torn and damaged were reported by the Cromatis who lived in the house next to be the original and undamaged. Danny was reported to have had his hand crushed when the window fell down on him, and George had to rush him to Brunswick Hospital. However, the hospital had no record of him having ever been there, nor did any other hospitals. When faced with this evidence, the Lutzes altered their story and now said that they bandaged him up at home. George reported to have seen cloven hoof prints in the snow outside the window after they saw Jody's red eyes glaring in at them. Yet in reality, there had been no snow in Amityville at that time. At 3.15 on Christmas morning, George had stated while he was outside checking the boathouse, he had looked up at his daughter's window and saw her staring down at him. And behind her had been a pig's face also looking down at him. His words were, quote, The orb of the full moon was like a huge flashlight lighting his way. However, the moon was not full that night. It was in its third quarter phase, and the conditions that night were, quote, mostly cloudy. On January 10th of 1976, George Lutz tells that the house is being pelted by heavy rain during an electrical storm. The weather records that night from nearby JFK Airport report that that at that time, George indicated the skies were clear and the air mass was much too cold to have supported a thunderstorm like the Lutz reported. Two weeks after the Lutz moved into 112 Ocean Avenue, they had their old friends, the Malalis, over for dinner. This is at a time where the hauntings were reportedly in full swing, yet the Malalis said that the Lutz were in great spirits, showed them around, and mentioned nothing of any problems with the house. Marvin Scott, who was there the night of the investigation at Amityville, and was reported to have felt strong chills inside of the sewing room, disputed this and filed suit against Anson and the publishers. The best measure for a legitimate haunting is corroborating witnesses and the consistency of the story. Here, we have neither. The Lutzes and Anson claimed plenty of witnesses, but all of them were disproven. The Amityville Historical Society said they were lying. The Amityville Police Department said they were lying. Father Frank Pecoraro said that they were lying. The Brunswick Hospital said that they were lying. Marvin Scott said that they were lying. William Weber said that they were lying. Even Ronald DeFeo himself stated years later that nothing paranormal had ever happened in the house. He had made up such claims to try and gain a new trial. So in effect, Ronald DeFeo thought that they were lying. And getting accused of lying by Butch really is an accomplishment. The Witch's Brew Bar, this part kills me, where George Lutz claims to have been has spent time in on several occasions, and where he had also been mistaken for Ronald DeFeo, did not exist. There is no such bar. I mean, that's brilliant. How stupid do you have to be to just just fabricate a bar? It's not like people in Amityville aren't going to notice that that fucking place doesn't exist. But the crazy thing is, is for how long people believe this story. I know. You know, a bar that wasn't even there. There may be one today. I don't know. Like maybe they try to capitalize on the fame and actually open one. But at the time of this story, I'm not saying that's true. I don't know. But there wasn't at the time. Never existed. Despite the claim of multiple people having mistaken George Lutz as Ronald DeFeo, outside of both having beards, there really was no resemblance at all. Butch was 23 and lean, while George was 39 and likely about twice Butch's size. 
As far as consistency of story, we again come up empty. The Let's can't even come up with a consistent time frame of when they live there. Ten days at first, then 28 days later on. They moved in on December 18th, December 23rd, and a few days after Christmas in Anson's book alone. As for the levitation incident, George had given no less than three wildly different versions. Love a good mystery that leaves you wanting more? Check out my podcast. Hi, I'm Kadra, the host of Perplexity, a Mystery Podcast. I tell tales every single week that have left me perplexed. You'll hear true crime cases, mysterious disappearances, learn about cults, hear baffling sightings of cryptids, chilling paranormal encounters, and even dark and weird history. I release new episodes every Wednesday, and you can listen anywhere podcasts are available. I'm also on Patreon, and you can even watch me on YouTube. Perplexity, a mystery podcast. Stories that will leave you perplexed. In a 1977 article that came out before the book, George said Kathy, quote, slid across the bed as if by levitation. In the 1977 book, he states that he entered the bedroom and saw her floating two feet above the bed. In September of 1979, George testified under oath in U.S. federal court when asked about the incident that Kathy had floated in the air about two inches above the bed. During the reported haunting, the Lutzes repeatedly commented on how cold their house was, so we can safely assume that Kathy was under the covers at the time. So if you woke up in the middle of the night, would you even notice someone who was under the covers was an inch or two above the mattress? I know I wouldn't. No. How the hell would you notice that? That's how much the mattress compresses when you lay on it, you know? that's. In his own words, George walked back several of their claims in later interviews. The slime, quote, was really more like Jello. That must be why he ate it. I know. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's just no way to spin that one. I, ju- I, don't. I just got to taste this demonic. <laughs> what is this? This on the slime wall? from the bottles of hell. It looks tasty. Yeah, so often I find shit on the wall, and I'm like, oh my god, that looks delicious. <laughs> just ridiculous, man. This. Uh, what? No, I already said that. He could not really identify a pig face attached to the red eyes in his daughter's window. The drums and horns he heard in the living room were not actually accompanied by stomping feet, a.k.a. not a marching band. The demon face that he witnessed in the fireplace was really, quote, just something ugly etched into the bricks. The action of the Lutz during their reported haunting is also extremely suspicious. When finding what they assumed to be some sort of demonic ectoplasm dripping down their walls, George decides that the best course of action is to pop it into his mouth and taste it. Unreal. When Kathy is transformed into a 90-year-old hag with sunken eyes, a long scar, and drooling all over herself, rather than freaking out and trying to find out why she suddenly aged 60 years overnight, she and George instead decided to lay in bed and watch the snowfall <laughs> and the sunrise. The kids were put in direct danger multiple times during the story, and they don't leave, despite Kathy's mother living nearby and offering them a place to stay. So... 
mom lives right down the road, basically. Yeah. So they have a place. They have an yeah. established place. But to there's go. just no Blair to escape to. She uh she made the offer several times, and uh you know if your kids are in danger, you would flee immediately. Anybody with half a brain. You, you know, know you look this. It starts out they're in the house what ten days, and then they're in there for twenty eight. That's part that kills me. It's like it's not even a good lie. It's such a poorly constructed lie. It did if you fled in ten days, you'd remember that. Or 28 days, you'd remember. Well, they they I, can't even decide when they moved in. Well, I think that the, uh, that's when they started you know, forming the story. They realized oh, 10 days, this isn't yeah. enough. We have to stretch this out because the story's happening way it's, too fast. It's been altered so many times. I think by the end, they don't even know what the story was anymore. No, he said he rented it like three times. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. They eventually fled in terror, allegedly never to return. George mentioned to a reporter later on that, quote, we – only went back two more times, implying that he brought another beloved family member back to this house of which he was, quote, mortally afraid. The movers were there the very next day to get the Lutz's things and reported nothing unusual. No one living there in the 46 years since has reported anything unusual. The Lutzes did not take a single photograph of anything they witnessed, even those things they had plenty of time to think about, like the slime on the walls, the black sludge in the sinks and the toilets, the cloven hoof prints. None of the neighbors from the month the Lutzes lived there were able to corroborate any details from their story. The address has since been changed to keep the curious away, and the spooky quarter moon windows that resemble demonic eyes have long since been removed. Ultimately, there's really not a single shred of evidence to suggest any from anything from this story is anything more than fiction, and poorly written fiction at that. While we all love a good ghost story, this tale doesn't even provide us that much. The haunting is convoluted, the characters unlikable, and the whole story simply doesn't make any sense. The most telling fact for me is the sheer amount of time the Lutzes had to alter their, quote, true story. A true story is just that and requires no alterations whatsoever. Even in the face of extreme criticism, the story would remain unchanged. George once said that despite the many inaccuracies, the story is, quote, mostly true. <laughs> Which parts, George, that they once lived in the house? I'll buy that. The rest, not so much. So we always do our 1 to 10 scale, and you would definitely get my most definitive answer on this one ever. Uh, 1 to 10, the likelihood that that house was haunted, I'm going to put at a zero. I don't buy any of it. Wow. I think nothing happened bottom. there. Absolutely nothing in my this, – I would this story agree. is absolute horseshit. I would agree. Uh, and this one is super disappointing. Very disappointing. Because this was the story. Yeah. For our generation, this was the haunting story. There was no other story that rang like this one. No. You know, this is what we everybody, all knew. Everybody's everybody knew heard of the Amityville one. Horror. And this was – you know, I watched the movies. Yeah. You know, I've read the book. The movie was creepy for sure. Yeah, uh, and uh, but it's just so disappointing yeah. that this. One when you wasn't. actually look into it, it just doesn't hold up at all. Another one by the Warrens. Yeah, and you notice a lot of the similarities. You know, the people before and after, nothing. Yeah, sounds an awful lot like a haunting in Connecticut, doesn't it? You know, when it's weird when Ed Warren arrives on the scene, he's never content to. It's not just haunted; it's always demonic. It's not just you know ghosts. There's always a demon when George is involved. Uh, George, when uh, Ed, me. Ed, excuse me, <laughs> yeah. yeah, when Ed is involved, it's always a demon. Uh, I wanted to mention before I forgot the uh, before I forget, a lot of the information for this story came from a, a book called the Amityville Horror Conspiracy by uh, Stephen Kaplan and uh, Roxanne Salch Kaplan. Uh, 
he was a PhD, and he was definitely not a skeptic about all these things. He was a paranormal investigator, so he wasn't a non-believer in anything paranormal. He just didn't believe this case, and he, he spent years investigating this. Anybody that would listen, he'd say that story is a hoax. And if you recall early in the story, he's the one that George invited out to the house and then canceled. Then didn't yeah. come out. Yeah, see, this, and this is another one. Guys, sorry if you're a big Warrens fan, but, I mean, this is another – Another one with by the Warrens that turns out to be just not the truth. Yeah, and me and Scott are both big fans of the you know the the, the genre, but uh, you know we're not skeptics by any stretch. But you've got a oh no, we're true believers. De- absolutely, I just don't believe this one. I don't believe a word of it. No, and I'm with you. I give it a zero. You know, there's just way too much proof. Nothing that they said turned out yeah, to be. You can't true. turn up a single fact. And they did really poorly. I mean, everything that they said was so easily proved yes. to not be true. It was a hoax and a very poorly constructed hoax at that. Uh, hopefully, you guys enjoyed that story. We had a blast doing it. I'm uh, not sorry. It's in the rearview mirror now, and I can turn. My you put a lot to- <laughs> of work on. That. I just read along. This was Ryan's from the start. It, uh, I mean, he killed it. Three, three episodes. Hopefully you guys liked it as much as we liked uh, doing it. So if you stick around for the uh, fire pit, that would be great. Thanks for listening, guys. Hi, Scott and Ryan. This is Gabrielle Celeste from the Spiritual Sisters podcast. And I wanted to share my story for the fire pit. But first, I wanted to say thank you to you both for all of the love and the support that you have shown me and my sister and our podcast. And I just wanted to say thank you for the continuous support and to your audience for all of the love. So a couple of years ago, when I was mostly at the beginning of my intuitive journey, I was pretty open to just energy in general. And I didn't really know how to protect myself uh, with doing this type of work. And I had actually um, had this experience when I was just kind of coming out of my dark night of the soul and doing a lot of just integration work and intuitive um, practices, developing my intuition, learning how to read energy. I had woken up one evening and this actually had two instances and they both happened in the same period of the same week. And in that first instance, I heard whisper in my ear very clearly if I wanted to learn about a demon. And it definitely was an entity of sorts, a negative entity of sorts, trickster energy. And I immediately negated it, rebuked it, and I turned over and I went to bed. So this was like maybe Monday or Tuesday of that week. And then about a day or two later, skip two nights ahead, I had had a very similar experience, but this time it was more physical. And much like you trace your fingers and you walk both fingers, say over like a desktop or like a countertop of sorts, I had had that experience where I... You know, I had like a thin sheet over me. I was sleeping in the middle of the night. And of course, both instances happen at the witching hour. The Those two fingertips of sorts, that motion, walked very closely to my groin area. And so 
that was pretty much the signal for me to start learning how to protect myself doing this type of work. And after that, I had actually had a reading with one of my mentors and she had mentioned that I was too open and we ended up clearing out my space and my home space, my bedroom, of course. And uh, sure enough, after that, I didn't have and haven't had a negative experience since then. But it just really goes to show you how protection protocols are very important and how real this work can be. So I just wanted to share them. Anyways, thanks again, guys. Uh, That was a great story. Hey, thanks for that story. We appreciate it. I actually uh, messaged her back. I'm going to have her uh, do a reading for me one of these days. Yeah. So maybe we'll record that. And we'll see. I've never actually had a reading or anything like that yeah. done. So I don't know. That's going to that's gonna be bad. Yeah. <laughs> She's going to read me. No, not her reading. Your, your soul is Oh, filthy. my God. Your soul it's is so, filthy. <laughs> they, they concentrate on the light. And uh, my soul is dark for sure. <laughs> no, we really appreciate your story. That's awesome. Thank you for sending it in. And, guys, go over, check out their podcast. If that's your thing, they they really have a really good podcast going so, yeah, on we, over there. We've got a fire pit story now from both of the spiritual sisters. So right. Those are both, both, both uh, great stories. And uh, it's a great show. So definitely head over there and check them out. Thanks, guys. Hey, Beyond the Shadows listeners. My name is Nicole Christine. My name is Gabrielle Celeste. And we are from the Spiritual Sisters podcast. And yes, guys, we are actually sisters. Born on the same day. But we're not twins. Don't get it twisted. Are you into the woo? Like astrology, numerology, tarot. Do you know what the Akashic Records are? Are you guys into the weird, like cults, conspiracy theories? alien abductions actually i know you guys are because you're listening to beyond the shadows and they did a great travis walton episode my favorite if you're into these topics then find us wherever you listen to podcasts on apple spotify and more and we just wanted to give a shout out to ryan and scott for bringing this creepy creative and cool show to life see you around the fire pit bye Bye. So that's the Spiritual Sisters, guys. Head over there and check them out. And we wanted to say thank you for listening to uh, our Amityville special, uh, episode 20. Uh, We'll catch you next week. Hi, my name is Joe, and I'm the host of Tales, Trails, and Taverns. In this show, Rob and I like to take an active approach by hiking out to haunted, creepy, and abandoned places. We love the adventure and discovering the dark history of the locations we visit. We release a new episode every Friday on Apple, Spotify, and Patreon, as well as bonus episodes on varying Tuesdays. But don't just take my word for it, we have great listeners who have left some awesome reviews. Oh, I love adventure, but during those times when I can't get into the outback, oh, I like to listen to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. Those boys dig deep into the dark history, and their first-hand experiences really delivers the excitement. This podcast is a beaut. Back when I was the governor, I didn't have time to listen to podcasts. But now that I'm retired from politics, I can focus on my two passions. Pumping iron and listening to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. It doesn't matter who we are. What matters is that we all listen to Tales, Trails, and Taverns. I love listening to the podcast. Wait, what's a podcast again? It's an audio show you listen to. Oh, like on the radio? Sort of, yeah. Okay. I love listening to Tulips and Tiddlywinks. It's... Tales, trails, and taverns. And what do you do again? Hike to scary places and drink beer. Sounds terrifying. Okay, 
I like to listen to Terrifying Tea Time, but not on the radio. Uh, okay, thank you. You did great. You're welcome. Say, so you're kind of cute. Is there a Mrs. Tales, Trails, and Taverns? Now, now you get it? No actual celebrities or political figures have endorsed Tales, Trails, and Taverns. All the reviews you've heard were written, fully, by the host, George Lennox, as well as the impersonations of celebrities, politicians, and movie characters. I meant no harm. Please don't sue me.